Hello and welcome to another episode of Elixir Talk, where we have kept Elixir in since last time. My name is Desmond Bowie, and I am here with Chris Bell. Ah, uh, I loved it. Uh, I have kept Elixiring, though. Have you? Well, that's a nice change of pace. I have been Elixiring. I've been Elixiring all week, working on a couple of side projects. Uh, a few that I'm not ready to talk about, but hopefully soon, because I think we may be able to um, use one of them to support this podcast. One of the funny things about having a technical podcast is that we can talk about code, but you can't see it. So I think it makes explaining solutions more difficult. But we nice. may have a way to uh, improve that in the future. That sounds cool. I've also been uh, keeping Elixir in in um, over the uh-huh. last few weeks <laughs> and have been working on some side projects and various things. But yeah. Anything, um, uh, anything interesting? Ah, so much, so much. I think I will talk about some of it a bit later on in the podcast because I want to parlay into some GraphQL kind of stuff that I've been exploring. And I think there's, I I have some opinions now, which is uh, a thing that I haven't been able to say before about GraphQL. So I'm kind of excited about diving into that. Um, Opinion's a dangerous thing. You know me, always full of them as well. So um, I will try to keep them objective and uh keep i don't know i will yeah i've been trying to like keep balanced and be mindful about what's good and what's shiny and what's maybe like trying to evaluate technology in the right kind of ways um so yeah we'll we'll touch on that later i'm sure cool i'm looking forward to that uh that part of the show but first i think we should uh kick the episode off with um Some sad news, as most of you have probably heard by now, Joe Armstrong, one of the co-creators of the Erlang programming language, passed away recently. And we, um, I never knew Joe, but obviously his work has had a tremendous impact on my career. Um, Joe invented Erlang along with Robert Verding and Mike Williams in the 80s, and he's been key figure in the community ever since then and he's touched a lot of people during their careers and i know has been a great source of inspiration to a lot of folks that i know personally and so i can thank him on behalf of them because i like them and i think they wouldn't be who they were without joe so it's uh you know it's a big loss to the community but i think we all owe a great debt to the work that he's done absolutely i just want to second that i you know, I, I also had never met Joe. I have watched many of his talks and been amused by so many things that he said on Twitter and beyond and seeing the ripple of his work just in the wider world and um, just seeing all of the the outpouring from the community over the last few days. Has, you know, like sometimes you forget that the internet is a good place, right? Like, And things <laughs> like this bring us together and especially as a community it's been like it's just been so nice to 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 read all these stories about this wonderful man who did so much for all of us in this community um and just such a a passionate and interesting man and um i i I think he is going to be missed absolutely and um yeah so just thank you for everything you did joe and uh just condolences to his family and to everyone who's known him as well so yeah i would like to bestow the desmond bowie nice mustache award 
posthumously on Joe Armstrong because he he had a pretty nice mustache. I know. I I always wanted to have him on here as well. Honestly, I'm <laughs> yeah. It would have been amazing, but um, yeah. I I mean I I think one thing that we should say here is um, Joe's wife tweeted back to Francesco's tweet about donating to lung research and we'll put a link in the show notes and um joe passed away from uh like uh complications with a lung condition um and she made that push to say donate there so i think if any of you you know have some extra cash around and you've been influenced from joe's work and you are where you are because of someone like joe in the community now is the time to donate you know to something like that so um yeah. Yeah, I think uh, it's the least we can all do, given again how much benefit we've all derived from the man and his life and his work. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, thank you, Joe, wherever you are. Thank you, Joe. Yeah. And also, please rewatch Erlang the musical because if you've never seen it, you're missing out on a huge part of the the culture of this community as well. And obviously, Joe stars a very Joe is a very starring has a very starring role in that as Wait, well. So there's a musical about Erlang. Hang on, whoa, whoa, whoa. you're kidding, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. It's the hello, Mike. Hello, Joe. System working. You know that? No. Uh, no. Okay. This is going in the show notes. And then after the show, I promise all the listeners that I'm going to make Desmond watch the video. Okay. Oh my goodness. And, uh, we'll talk about it next time. I I guess if we were really fancy kind of podcast, what we do right now is cut, make Desmond watch it, start back up and then talk about it. But, um, we have very limited technical capabilities. (laughs) (laughs) So there we go. But anyway, yeah, I, you know, that's such a, just the technology and like the way that like that group of people thought about pushing the boundaries of what they knew about software and just how Joe kept doing that throughout his life. You know, it's just so indicative of like, this, this like why we're here and we're talking about Elixir and like, we're talking about fault tolerance and all these things because like these, these people and especially Joe kind of push, push things forward in that regard. And his, um, his uh, thesis is is a, just an amazing read as well. If, if you haven't read that, um, all about Erlang and designing kind of fault tolerant and, and 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 systems that can crash and yeah, it's just yeah, it's great. So uh, I will link to that in the show notes as well. So yeah, I would say anyone who went to the extent of writing a musical about a programming language has definitely pushed the envelope a little bit. <laughs> well. Okay, there's so much you need to know, but we'll leave that for another day. Uh, oh, um, anyway, I, I, I have uh, one other thing I want to say as well here, which is uh, a segue on from Joe onto MPEX. And as we know, it's April. It's April 23rd when we're recording this episode. So I'm sure you'll receive this hopefully around April 30th or so depending on how good Desmond does with the editing. I'm sorry, Desmond. Depending on Um, how quickly I get through this musical. (laughs) Yes, exactly. But uh, MPEX NYC is fast approaching. So MPEX NYC is on May 18th here in New York City. We have a fantastic lineup. I am actually teaching a training on May the 17th. I'm doing the intro to Elixir training. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're not sick of hearing me talk and you want to learn a bit more about Elixir, 
you can come along and I will personally train you and we can talk about how cool Elixir is in person. Um, and also, if you come to the conference on the Saturday, you're going to hear, I think it's eight or nine speakers at this point, uh, one of which is Dave Thomas um, and some other fantastic folks there. We have um, Eric of Ecto fame as well coming along to talk and a bunch of other people who from the community uh, who are just giving some fantastic technical talks. So if you have not bought your ticket yet, now is the time to do so. You've got about two weeks left from when this episode comes out. And, you, you know, I would love to see you there. I'm sure Desmond would love to see you there. And you can come and bother us and tell us why uh, everything we say on this podcast is wrong and why our opinions about Star Trek are also incorrect. I'm, I'm okay chance. with that. Yeah, that is the chance. If you want to do it, that's the chance. So, um, yes, we'll put a link to the show notes as always, but would love to see you there. Far out. Well, let's uh, switch gears. We had a bunch of questions come in from the community, and I know we like to say that we answer questions here on this show, but let the record show that we have not been doing that lately, so we apologize. But uh, today, it's going to be different. Today is going to be different. It's going to be different. (laughs) So, I mean... We say there's been a bunch of questions from the community. I think they've been stacking up for quite some time, so we should address a few of these right now, right? Okay, so the first one that we're going to talk about, um, we had two questions from Harlan Wood and Jerome Doyle. Uh, One was on GitHub and one was on Twitter. Um, And they were questions about the GitHub side project that I had previously talked about in some other episodes. So... I need to apologize, first of all. I think, you, you know, like programmer optimism where you're like, yeah, I'm going to ship that thing. Well, <laughs> I think I fell uh, kind of, <laughs> I, I fell prey to some to that kind of idea and uh, I didn't release the GitHub pull request app that I was trying to build. And actually, I haven't actually worked on it in about three months. So we are now in <laughs> April and I haven't touched that since January. So apologies to those people. Um, so the, the state of the world there is, it is somewhat done. I might actually just open source the code because um, why not? There's no nothing really proprietary in there. Um, but the idea of that app was like a better way to help your uh help engineering leads really like if i'm getting specific help engineering leads manage pull requests that need to be reviewed uh approved or re-looked at as well and giving you a really tight feedback loop that was outside of the github notifications to do that and i still think there's an idea there and um maybe i should just open source what i have it's all elixir it's it's it what it works all the actually all the back end works i got really bored when i was doing the ui and i just stopped so mm-hmm. maybe i should have done phoenix live for you maybe that would be a better way to do this um but yeah there you go so that's the that's the conclusion on that for harlan and for uh sorry forgot your name jerome well i think we can all relate to that programmer optimism <laughs> so. i hope so <laughs> yeah we're all here we've all been doing this for a while right <laughs> not gonna bust you too hard on that thank you um, okay, so and then the next question that we had, um, which we had way back, we'll reverse the clock, and uh, we had a question. Oh, actually, it wasn't way back. It was 15 days ago. Here we go. So we had a question coming from um, Andre Gutgog, 
Kutkonk. Andres Kutkonk, coming to us all Thank the way you. from Barcelona, Spain. And, oh you know, when you're online, it doesn't really matter where you're coming from. But I still think it's cool because Barcelona is exotic. Also, international listeners, thank you. Yeah. Um, Hola. So, uh, Andres <laughs> says um, he's he wants to know about code organization with something like Phoenix Context. Um, and I'm going to extrapolate on this issue and assume that Andres is talking about how to organize code inside of Phoenix Context. Um, I think... I think we've touched on this probably before, but I don't know about how much detail we've gone into. Um, I think there's some other good blog posts that we can link to in the show notes here where some other people have kind of gone into a bit more depth about like how to think about splitting up that code. I'm going to give you my philosophy, and then Desmond, I want to hear yours as well about how you do this. Um, for me, contexts are all about specific areas of your domain um, that can be divided. Um and let me give you some real-world examples of that. So uh, the last Phoenix app I wrote, we had kind of two different areas of separation that I think you can think about in isolation. Um, one context and one area was all about um, accounts, everything to do with like user management, setting up user accounts, everything to do with like inviting users. Um, we had this concept of teams, which is all about like having many users on many users, basically like groups of users together. Um, and that accounts context kind of encapsulated everything to do with that idea about management of users and everything around that. And then we also had another side of our context, which is all about this domain language of understanding everything about like the, the like the meat of the, the app, which in our case is all about like managing assets and projects. Um, and this is at Frame.io actually that I'm talking about here. But they were the, that was the kind of general approach that we took when we started to split up the Frame.io app into two different contexts, one that really touched on accounts and users and the other one that touched our core kind of um, the like I want to call like the meat of the app, which is all about like managing projects and managing everything to do with projects. Um, but, and then you can imagine like later there might be other contexts where um, they fell outside of those things. I, for me, like I, I've seen some people write about some hard and fast rules about like, oh, well, you don't want to like share models across contexts and you really want to try this like domain-driven design approach where each context has its own schemas and you're loading DB things separately and you're not really sharing them across. Um, it, at, at Frame, we didn't really enforce those rules. And we didn't have those boundaries across our context. Uh, we actually just had this idea where, let's say we're in like the projects context and we had like something to do with like assets or managing assets, so media. Um, we, we would import the user from the accounts context if we needed the user. We wouldn't like redefine it in this separate context and have it there. Um, and I, to me, like... I understand this like idea where p some people want more like defined service boundaries and they want to think of context as like separate services that could be split out at a later date. But, um, and I think that's a fine approach. I just think that like, I think early when you're trying to move quickly, like enforcing those kinds of boundaries might actually like lead you astray until you've really figured out what your domain actually looks like. So yeah. What do you think Desmond? I got really into domain-driven design maybe five or six years ago. 
and was like, this is super cool, and went as far as writing a Ruby Ruby library to support that programming style. And it's interesting intellectually and kind of a pain to use operationally. And I can see a point where your company is very large, your project is very large, and it's a, a useful tool for code organization. But I want to second Chris's point about most of the apps that we are working on are not going to be that big to the point where you really derive benefits from this technique. And I think that's the key thing here is, is domain-driven design like a useful tool? Yeah, it is. But what are the trade-offs of um, ease of use versus reward of clean code organization for most of um, most of our applications? So that being said, how do I use Phoenix contexts? I use them as basically business logic wrappers, like a business logic layer um, to my app. So there's the controller, like web layer, that calls into different contexts. And then the context um, will call out to schemas to do what it needs to do. When it gets to, okay, well, in this context, a user looks like A, and in that context, a user looks like B. I don't. I haven't seen a lot of benefit in that kind of bifurcation. I think it's always helpful to have a schema that maps directly to a database table. And if you only need a certain number of fields on it, then you can have... Sure, it's fine to create another schema for uh, a guest user, for example, as opposed to an admin user. And I guess those would live in... Those schemas would live in contexts, but... You know, when you spend time thinking about, okay, well, as this person, what do I want to do with comments? I mean, okay, I can see the argument that if you're an administrator, you want to have full control over creating, editing, moderating, say, comments. Whereas if you're a regular user, you can only edit your own comments. And encapsulating that at the context layer can be useful. But I think... Often, we don't actually buy ourselves that much benefit from adhering rigidly to the philosophy. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of second that. I think like when I break down like what I've done in context, I like to think of my context as like service functions, right? Yeah. Basically, mm-hmm. like the services that interact primarily in, in like what I'm dealing with most days is like external systems and external like data source so whether that be a database or um, making api calls to another service or um, you know storing assets in s3 or something like that but like the service modules themselves are basically just all of the business logic that encapsulates like taking stuff from out the outside whether that be sockets or controllers or whatever it might be parsing that and then Performing all of the business logic, the validations, everything in order to uh, to perform the actions that those those functions are trying to achieve, right? So I might have like a create user um, con- like context service function that would basically um, end up inserting the user into the database, and like like I, we're just passing structs around most of the time, and those structs are like ecto structs. Like I like I know there's this like big movement in. DDD to like 
oh, don't pass your DB objects around and actually think about them as like abstract types and like try and like not like leak. And I, I think like people talk about this a bit more in the Elixir community as well. Of like, don't leak your ecto ob- like models and schemas around everywhere. And like, I'm, I honestly, I think like for us at Frame, certainly, and most of the apps I've ever worked on, like most of the stuff is just DB mapping, right? Yeah. And like most of the stuff is like a schema that like you're taking a row from the DB and you're doing something with it. Like, and like I, I'm okay with that leaking everywhere because it's just like it's part of the application, it's part of the design. And like, you know what? Like, I actually think adding a separation layer would not get you much there. And like, Ecto, Ecto structs are like of extremely lightweight anyway. And I, I have no problem like thinking about those as just really kind of raw data accesses, you know, like they're just like literal mappings of a table onto a struct. So, yeah, I mean, your database, like the idea of a relational database is you are uh, capturing business logic and relationship of business entities and their attributes. And that's what it means to have uh, a foreign key. That's what it means to have columns on a particular table. So, uh, you know, does that always work? Like, no, your mileage may vary. And that's why we can do whatever we want with code. Um, So just be, I guess, judicious about it. I'm rereading the question. And on second read, I think what Andres is getting at is more about, like, where do we put code in general? And Phoenix Context is one solution to it. But he also brings up Umbrella apps as like, well, is this mm. uh, is this a reasonable choice for putting my code in places? Because we could put all of our code in one single file and be done with it. But how do we break it up? Yeah, for me, that's like, I, I think like when I reflect back on my Elixir career to date, I'm like, I think when I first learned about umbrellas, my my, and we've talked about this in other episodes where um, I I made the mistake of kind of dividing apps up on the context and actually like subdividing apps, right? Like so, you'd end up with an umbrella app that was basically just like a ton of contexts and separated as separate applications. And like nowadays, the way I think about that code organization is like. And I, I honestly, I think Phoenix is doing a really good job with this out of the box now. It's like you have your web and you have your like main logic, right? So if you name your app blog, you end up with blog web and blog, right? And blog may have many other contexts inside of it, but blog web always calls into that application. Uh, sorry, into that like namespace effectively because it's not a, it's not a separate application there. It's just a separate namespace and like of module naming. Um, and like blog web calls into that and then you might have other contexts inside of there and then you're kind of breaking your code up like that um, and I can share some of the things that we do around naming um, those the conventions that we've done have scaled quite well I, I would say at frame um, we have basically split it up so we have like an app which is all of our core business logic and the reason why it's not in our main API is because it's shared across a couple of apps um, so that's why we used a, a separate application to kind of share that logic. And um, you could do that with Hex um, private uh, private organizations as well now. If you didn't want to do it as an umbrella, we chose to do it as an umbrella there. And then inside of that, we have all of our contexts. So we have our accounts, we have our projects, things like that. 
And then inside of each one of those contexts, um, we end up having one folder that has all of our schemas in it. So literally all of the Ecto schemas. And then we have, I, I like to, I like to like in my like service modules, I like to split out the idea of like authorization, which Desmond, you was talking about before, but I like to split that out into a concept of policies. So can this user do this thing? And it, like, if you're familiar with like can, can, or like those old Ruby modules, and there's, there's a few in Elixir as well, but um, I like to kind of split those out as a separate kind of idea that you can unit test in isolation as well. Um, yeah, and so I like to have those as separate policies and then have all of your kind of um, service modules inside of that context. Yes. Cool. <laughs> we should just share some stuff. And I, I, yeah. I just found um, Michael Muscala's uh, blog post about putting context in context. So we'll share that as well. Yeah, I mean, I recommend against using Umbrella apps unless you specifically need to deploy a standalone part of your application to a specific server that the rest of your yeah. application will not run on, I would say do not use Umbrella apps. Like we, when Umbrella apps were, well, I guess they're in Erlang, right? Mm-hmm. Are they? I don't, I don't know. I don't, I think there's a concept of application share, but like it's all about configuration otherwise, right? So in, yeah. you know, way back in the dark ages, there was no such thing as private hex repositories. So mm-hmm. Umbrella apps were a way to um, write your own library, like internal library, and include it in your application. But now organizations can have private uh, repos on Hex, and so there's less need to like bake that into the structure of your application. Mm-hmm. In fact, right, there's exactly. no need to bake that into the structure of your application. <laughs> yeah. It's going to go all the way here. So I think it's a good rule of thumb. Don't use umbrella apps. Contexts are useful, but it's sort of like service. Um, I want to say, imagine service-oriented architecture, except the service is not external; it's just inside your one app. Yeah, yeah, and and even then, like, be judicious in your like in your approach to that. Like, I just don't go don't go overboard in like thinking about everything as services and nothing can cross the boundary because like. Honestly, you're probably doing this because you want better organization. And if you're doing it early, I just don't feel like you know enough about your domain to really make those decisions. So, Mm. yeah. Yeah, I'm basically at the point now of anarchy. Where I'm (laughs) like, just put it somewhere. It doesn't matter. Like, functions have no... You're going to get it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to get it wrong. And how you group them doesn't mean anything. It's just supposed to make some sort of sense and if it doesn't make sense or if it doesn't make something super easy for you then there's no point absolutely so there you go there you go um okay so then the last question we wanted to answer today um was from sasha wolf on Mm. twitter cool name um and his twitter handle is wolf for earth and it was just earth day this week so uh, a very appropriate question for this week um, so Sasha Wolf asks, um, you're always saying how you love event buses on Elixir Talk. I can relate to that. So please tell me, what are you using for that? An open source lib? Some, some custom build? A combination? Thanks in advance. So Sasha, uh, first of all, there's an episode all about event buses that we can link to. Um, and I am going to link to 
Elijah Kim's talk in the show notes where he actually talked about the event bus implementation that we have at Frame.io um, that is, I can spoiler alert, tell you is all kind of homegrown, built off of GenStage as a primitive um, and that's that's really the open source tool that it's built on top of and it just uses protocols on top of that and structs to implement different kind of types um, and that's it. That's really it. It's really simple and it's really cool and it's a really good way to go if you want to like start out um, without like using a library and like to be honest I was doing a little look the other day and seeing like what else was out there for this kind of thing and uh, there's definitely some libraries there's like literally a library called event underscore bus in elixir or you could do something like sqs or you could do you know um there's like job frameworks that are modeled more closely to like sidekick or rescue um so there's other approaches but like fuck it like start small do it start like start simple and go from there you know and like i've been following this pattern in 11 in like every elixir app i've been building for the last few years so and it's worked out really well yeah that's one of the weird things about this language is that even if there is a library for doing this sort of thing it's like it's almost easier just to write it yourself yeah. instead of learning how the library works yeah um, like dude we literally have a comment in our like event bus dispatcher code that's like this is copied from the gen stage example (laughs) (laughs) and like we we literally just like yeah i'm reading it right here it's like taken from elixir lang gen stage like examples gen event it was like literally taken from the gen event event broadcaster and like it and obviously we've extended it over a certain amount of time right and like we've added functionality to it we do persistent events and stuff like that now but like all of that stuff was not hard to build and we built it when we needed it Mm -hmm. and uh it got us very far so far and the deferred pattern that we have has really like been able to scale pretty well for i think we have like 11 different types of consumers of the event bus now so and it's processing a ton of transactions a day. So, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about this earlier today um, when I was trying to figure out a solution to a problem. I thought, well, that's kind of suboptimal. Like the performance isn't that great. I'm reversing some list when maybe I, I, I feel like I shouldn't have to. Then I thought, you know what? Computer's fast enough. I mean, unless you're at some crazy scale where you need like an industrial event bus, like Elixir will take you pretty far. Yeah, and yeah. If you roll, absolutely. If you roll it yourself, then you have the added advantage of you know how it works. Um, because you built it out in stages, as you say, no pun intended. And <laughs> when you add, say, persistence, you know how the persistence works, um, what the trade offs are, and what the decisions were. Whereas if you bring in someone's library, you tend to gloss through the readme and you figure out the API, and you're like, well, okay, this kind of does what i want but how it achieves that is perhaps known to the person that brought it in but not as much throughout the rest of your team absolutely oh um i just looked up our metrics dashboard um our event bus does about one hundred eighty thousand events at peak every hour so it's pretty good it's doing quite oh actually more than that i just found a graph that's higher like two hundred thousand events an hour at peak so it's processing like pretty significant volume of events really um so that's 55.6 events per second 
yeah, that's fine. Like it's a decent enough amount, and we definitely see spikes if like someone does a very large delete that has very large repercussions across the cluster, and like there's things that we have to deal with. But like, yeah, you know, that's all built on no external tech, right? <laughs> we're not paying for like SQS or something there. Um, we're just we're just leveraging the VM, and it doesn't have a negative impact on the rest of the 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 vm you know like it's not like our it, this runs on our api literally on our api servers right so we're not running separate servers to do this either it's just running there yeah it's, it's not like you're taxing your system at 55 no we're fine and like everything's <laughs> good and you know what i'm very happy with what we the decision we made there you know so it sounds and like that, the summary is roll your own event bus write a thing to be the bus and then have your publishers publish to that and then manually subscribe your consumers right absolutely and like that's our event bus is being like basically every some every time someone does like a right action right from our api it will drive something into the event bus so um for us we do i'm looking at our stats we do about three million requests an hour something like that um so and then you have like 200,000 events coming off of it. And like that's not running on many boxes at all right now. And it, it's scaling really well. And we have a absolute path to continue to scale that horizontally. And that's great, you know, mm-hmm. as a business. And like, I don't have to make a significant technology investment in like, oh, we're going to do this crazy Lambda-based like scheme to do all these things and pay a ton of money to AWS. You know, like we have a really easy path to keep scaling it and – uh I think that's that's a good thing. So, and it's simple. So yeah, there we go. Sweet. Um, so there you go, Sasha. Uh, hit me up if you have any other questions. So cool. And then the, I guess the last topic, and we're really really pushing ourselves for time here today, Desmond. But um, the, yeah, I mean we're at thirty something minutes, so four minutes. So I'll be as fast as I can possibly be. But um, first of all, question for you: Have you played with GraphQL? No. Ever? No. Okay. What's your like outside read on it? My outside read is that it's a way for the clients to ask simply for what they want instead of just like whatever the API gives back. And I've written APIs where eventually you find that, well, this request wants like a slightly different shape of data than that other one. So I can either just say, screw it, and take everything back and then try to munge the data on the client, or I can go to the trouble of writing an entirely new endpoint that I then have to support. And GraphQL does away with a lot of that um, a lot of that clumsiness. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you're, you're spot on. GraphQL is a query language whereby the clients can specify the data they want and any relationships of that data they want in a graph-like format. Um, the clients are specifying those queries. You have a single API endpoint that you're exposing. Uh, that query is then processed by the server, which resolves the data and then sends it back down to the client in a format that is typed and understood. So a couple of things here that are really nice wins. You get a type schema from the get-go. So your server exposes the types that can be queried, right? the schema that can be queried. Um, and then that means that you can build some really nice introspection tools because you know what 
the query language looks like the whole time. And by that, I mean that um, there's literally a thing in GraphQL called Graph IQL, which is all about introspection. Uh, and it, <clears throat> it allows you to basically like have documentation in line about the queries you can build and build up those queries really easily. <clears throat> Sorry, have a cough. And then, um, so you, you can do that. Your client can then specify exactly what it wants. You can more easily deprecate fields. You can easily add fields without breaking other clients, things like that as well. Um, and then uh, you, you can basically do things where in REST, you would have to make multiple requests or you would have to figure out like what your include format looks like for sideloading data. Mm-hmm. You can more easily do that with GraphQL as well. So if I have a post that belongs to an author and you want to pluck out the author's name, um, I can write a query from the client that basically says uh, query for all of the posts and always pull out the author and the author's name and just write that in one kind of query rather than making many requests. Yeah, Because the client knows for that page it's trying to render what data it needs. And so that's the place where it can say, aha, for this view of a post, I want all the comments. Whereas for that view, I don't need comments at all. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like, and like the traditional way you would do that in REST, right? Like, let's think about that. If we were building that comments endpoint, we might choose to sideload users, right? Yeah. And we would have comments, have an author. And then we have, let's just say by default, we're always going to include the author with all those requests. But if I now have, you know, first of all, if I'm consi- consistently serializing a user, I A, might be sending way too much data over the wire and B, like, maybe there's some clients that don't even need that data to start with. So, you know, I'm, I can be over sending data or under sending data in cer- some circumstances as well, right? Like right. you might actually need the author and then maybe there's a, like a, a another object that contains some other metadata about the user that you now need to sideload as well. And like, how do I approach that, right? So I think in REST, there's a few answers to this. There's, um, you've got like the JSON API spec, that has kind of thought through how you standardize this and how you do a better job of um, consistently serializing it, consistently serializing entities and doing relationships between those entities as well. Um, Now, GraphQL is basically an alternative to that where you're putting a lot more onus on the client to understand the schema and to figure out like what queries they want to make. And the server doesn't, expose specific resources anymore it figures out a mapping between a query and a resource and then knows how to extrapolate on that and return everything about that resource back to the client and all of the fields that the client has requested Um, so since they say that none of us was ever doing rest properly anyway it sounds like (laughs) discarding it completely is not so bad yeah and i think there's by the way there's other approaches here right like you could talk about like I know you were doing like um, RPC before, right? Like yeah, JSON RPC. Yeah, exactly. So there's like, and like there's there's transport layers like Thrift or things like that that basically encode a schema, and you can talk about easily adding and deprecating fields over the wire because you know about the positions of those in the schema. And like there's other there's other ways to solve this problem, but yeah, I. I think there are some really interesting advantages here when it comes to the client. I think it it doesn't make the server easier. It makes it probably makes the server harder because you might like end up loading a huge like amount of data, right? Like unless you're careful, 
you could be saying, you know, you could have a client being like, I want to request this extremely deeply nested object that has tons of permissions checks that is maybe hitting like maybe going between like seven different services and aggregating the data and figuring all of that kind of stuff out. And like, but I, I also was thinking about this a bit more recently and the same is kind of true of REST. You can still make bad decisions in a REST API, right? You can not put pagination on there and end up fucking yourself with like loading a shit ton of data, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, um, it sounds like you are a fan of GraphQL. I spent the last week talking to people i knew about it and uh just shout out to the crew that i know of billy scott uh eli and Stu, who we had a very long discussion on slack about pros and cons of graphql who's used it in production who hasn't um things that they've seen things that they haven't like war stories against rest and things like that and then i spent a long time kind of exploring it myself and trying actually like rebuilt uh side projects rest api using graphql over the weekend and then ripped out all of the client implementation i had to use graphql as well and i yeah it's really cool it's really cool Uh and i i was really surprised about how much i was like wow this is actually like you get it working you write a query and it works and you're like what how did i just make that work you know because you're like effectively like querying deeply nested objects and um we're an elixir podcast so i should talk about absinthe which is a graphql kind of layer in elixir it is really quite straightforward to do this and like you get a lot of power out of the box it has a really great absinthe has a really great dsl for defining your schemas uh for figuring out how you write the resolvers to like map between um whatever you've got like the query to the resolver the resolver's job is basically like calling your db right or calling whatever it needs to fetch the data resolving the data from the query um but it's really just like the query part and the resolver part is all about like mapping like entity names so let's say you have a query that's like posts that maps to a post resolver that knows how to fetch all of the posts um and hopefully this is making sense. And you might have pagination in there or you might have like a limit or some filters about what you want to return. And all of that is kind of encapsulated at this resolver level that then calls in, for me, at the like Elixir Phoenix kind of absinthe layer, called back into my contacts and my services to then resolve the data and return it. And then absinthe knows how to like pluck the fields that it needs and return those fields and then figure out any deeply nested queries and things like that so it's it's really cool it's really really cool um and it by the way caveat this is early days for me i might have new opinions <laughs> soon but yeah yeah you sound like you've just been on a first date yeah 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 i do i feel like it because like you know what i've been building rest for a long time i'm sure it's the same with you and like i've tried out a couple of different things but um I don't know, I was just really pleasantly surprised. Like, I've heard a lot of, like, the hype cycle about GraphQL, and, you know, we're, like, I think it came out in 2015, so we're, like, four years into it now. And, like, I, I think the Absinthe implementation is mature enough and is clearly powering a bunch of people in production. Um, it's simple enough to write where, you know, I could imagine ramping a team on it. And, like, the fact that you get all, like, scheme like strongly typed schemas out of the box is just it's just so nice like going through the rigmarole of trying to like write documentation for a rest api holy crap you mm-hmm. know 
like we, we've been doing that a frame for a while like we're writing like an open source library actually to do it in phoenix um that hopefully we can talk about at some point soon but like yeah like the fact that all of that just happens and you've got this like really great query language on top of it and you can do all these things it's just like just feels so powerful that was one of our challenges at versus was documentation around all these different json rpc calls and that you know we never came up with a good answer that was uh, efficient automated and something we could disseminate among the team but that said i want to challenge you a bit here at elixir talk we disagree with each other from time to time <laughs> because earlier in this episode we were saying like do you really need context is this really that important what kind of benefit are you deriving from it when you're just trying to get shit done so, mm-hmm. I put it to you, Chris. Does GraphQL cross that threshold of being like, yeah, this really does move the needle? Or is it just another thing that you can do? I I think there's certain circumstances where, where, for me, like from the outside, it feels really good. And I think there's times where you probably don't need it. I think if you've got a simple REST API with a single consumer, and that's all you need to do, and your graph is not that complex or deep... Like, and you don't need to expose all of that graph for like third parties to be able to query. Like, just build REST. Like, if you know REST and you're productive with it, just build REST. You know, I think like, I, like the reason why I was evaluating this from the get go is like, I'm building like a multi client app where it has iOS, Android, and web from the get go, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and then it was, may also have like a public API as well. And I'm like, this feels really good. This feels like a really easy way to be able to enable this across client um kind of work fairly easily um and then you know like when those clients diverge which i I think inevitably they will do at some point Mm -hmm. you i have a mechanism in which i can enable that and just continue building without worrying about it you know and it doesn't feel like too much overhead it also gives you versioning for free right yeah, the dep- you can deprecate fields, basically. Yeah, You can indicate in your schema when a field is deprecated for your clients. And then there's all this tooling built on top to say, like, what fields are clients using? What are they not using? What can, therefore, you deprecate more easily? Like, mm-hmm. because you know exactly what they're querying for, you can make assumptions about what they're using, right? Mm. Which is, you know, yeah, sure, there may still be, like, things that aren't true there but there's definitely areas where it could be really good i will say one other thing here as well which is like if you were building like an aggregator across many services that you have let's say you were a bigger company and you had many services each of which you know had its own graph effectively and you wanted to do an aggregation service across that i think graphql is an amazing tool for that i really do i think the, the transparency it gives to clients in that regard could be really, really powerful. Like you're just like, you know, you're basically just being like query whatever you want and we'll figure it out. And mm-hmm. like, yeah, as a backend team, that's probably kind of scary, but like the power that it enables your clients is incredible. So, yeah. So speaking of um, backend and just general like infrastructure concerns, if the queries are opaque, then how can you deal with things like... Um caching requests yeah so that's a problem you can no longer do caching at the like you can't do http caching anymore because everything's a post right 
So you don't get an easy cacheable entity like you do with REST. Mm -hmm. So your cache layer now has to move inside of your GraphQL layer, right? Mm. So you basically have to like take the query, parse it, and then at the resolver layer is where your your caching is probably going to be. Um, so that's that's probably you know you're gonna you're gonna have more invocations in that case. There are ways like there's strategies where people have been looking at caching here as well. So there's probably more work and more things I need to read up about about the subject. But yeah, because like the thing with HTTP is there's caching built in at so many different levels. Yeah, and like you get it out of the box, right? You do you do like edge caching of like REST responses, especially if it's like a publicly accessible response, and you can just cache the whole JSON object. You're done. Yeah, I mean, you just send a header in the response. You say this response yeah, is good it, for three days. Right, but you can effectively do the same thing. Like the part that you can't do is like you're still going to incur a cost between like taking the query and um, parsing the query, calling your resolvers, and then that's where your cache would be, right? So you still have some compute overhead there. But I'm saying like with a traditional, say, Git request, um, with the response, you can pass headers saying this request is good is for valid. a couple hours and then the browser yeah, you will can't cache do that. that yeah you'd have your browser your caching layer now moves inside of your client rather than being at the http layer which honestly in the age of very stateful clients i don't think it's a terrible thing either and the, by the way this is the other power like powerful thing here is like there are some really great libraries built on top of graphql at the client layer to enable a lot of the things we're talking about mm -hmm. um so i played around with apollo um apollo in javascript to do this and that has a lot of kind of cache optimizations built in uh, at the like application layer to think about these kinds of things that you're talking about but i think we can say that if your app is let's say a um, a media website where a lot of your queries are gets for contents then maybe this is not maybe this is not a good I don't fit. know man the new york times and vox and a few other people have all just rewritten their services into graphql mm -hmm. and they're doing all their aggregation layer at the graph in graphql with, with like caching behind it i mean i can see again our use case of like sometimes do you want to do you want to load the authors of the comments for a particular post and other times you don't mm. but i think that i don't know it still seems like if you have a lot of get requests for static content then... i think you just gotta architect your like your your service slightly differently but like the fact that like if you're a big enough company and you're you've got a large graph of data that you want to expose across many services like probably like the new york times did a talk about this about how they they re-architected their services using graphql um like, yeah, I'm sure they've, you know, I'm sure caching is a huge consideration there, right? Like, millions of page views, like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's a thing they have to think about all the time. And, like, they've made that work. They have, you know, they've, they've enabled this. And they, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's, like, a, I'm, I'm sure these are, like, not necessarily, like, totally solved problems, but they're at least considered problems. You just have to think about it in a different way. The question is... Can we pronounce it graphical? <laughs> graphical? Graphical? Um, there was this thing called like graph.cool, which was like a service, like a GraphQL service layer thing. But yeah, hmm. it was cool. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. I think you should play around with it as well. I'm like on the hype train right now and I've been reading so much about it. So <laughs> yeah. And Absinthe is awesome. It's really cool. 
There are some hard things, by the way. I mean, another th- another thing that I've heard about GraphQL is that you basically have to start with it because converting your app to it later is a total pain. Yeah, I think the only path to conversion is like putting a layer in front of services, like I was saying. I think that's like the only way you would basically do it. Like you would you would end up having like your REST layer and then a GraphQL layer and maybe your GraphQL layer consumes your REST layer, something like that. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if you're, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, you, your client is now a GraphQL client as well, right? you're you're mm-hmm. coupling it to that implementation so yes i think there's a lot of refactoring potentially involved for existing clients and it's a rewrite so it seems like for a lot of our advice about you know you're not going to need it and this out of the box solution will get you pretty far you can always fix it later this decision is a long standing one and if you do decide to change your mind it exacts a heavy penalty yeah, and I was reading some like Hacker News. Oh God, Hacker News comments. <laughs> Just don't do that. Um, but no, it was it was actually interesting. There was an article that showed up this week that was all about like a deep dive into Elixir, Phoenix, Absinthe, and Apollo. And I was like, oh shit, that's exactly what I'm trying to do this weekend, right? And it came up, and there was a lot of people who were like, well, we moved away from this stack because it was really complex and it added load of overhead. And it's like, yeah, like you've got to make the right trade-offs like with your tech right mm-hmm. like you're you're like buying into this thing across your clients and like yes there are certainly times where it doesn't make sense as a team to do this so um i think with all of these decisions it's a like what problems do you have today like where do you think this is going you know are you are you in the right place to adopt this as a team? Like, how expensive is this going to be to ramp everyone up on? I'm sure not everyone in your team is going to be productive with this technology stack out of the box. There's like so many things to consider as always. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think there's like, there are right circumstances to do it. And I think, I don't think it's like a slam dunk, like every, this should replace rest all the time by any means. But I think there are cases where it makes sense. Yep. Cool. Well, I will add that to my list. Sweet. Well, uh, if any of the listeners out there have any thoughts or opinions or things that they've run into in absence that I am going to experience really soon, please let us know. So uh, you can get in touch with us as always via Twitter, which is twitter.com forward slash Elixir Talk. You can also open up a question on our GitHub um, as we answer some questions today, I think we can plug that again. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can do that at github.com slash Elixir Talk slash Elixir Talk and then just open up a question there as an issue. Uh, and hopefully we can come back to that in some episodes uh, in the future. Hopefully. Hopefully. And then as always, uh, we would love to hear your reviews of this podcast and we'd love you to tell your friends. So wherever you get in this podcast today, hit on the rate button, give us some five stars, give us a review. We massively appreciate it. So yeah. Cool. Well, thanks everyone for uh, joining us for another fascinating episode of Elixir Talk. A very extended episode. It's 55 minutes. We really earned it today, didn't we? We really did. And so. so did our listeners. <laughs> yeah, thanks for sticking with us all the way through to the end. And uh, yeah. Keep elixiring. Keep elixiring. We should say that with a little more confidence. Ready? We should. One, two, three. Keep elixiring. Keep elixiring. I love it. <laughs>